I think about the work that I did in child welfare and seeing generationally how families started to really have certain patterns of behavior, not only is that due to some epigenetics and how adverse childhood experiences really affect how we live our lives and then our health within our lives. I I look at the fact that then that means as a community, we have to begin to support them differently and educate them differently. Ever feel like you suck at this job? Motherhood, I mean. Have too much anxiety and not enough patience. Too much yelling, not enough play. There's no manual, no village, no guarantees. The stakes are high. We want so badly to get it right. But this is survival mode. We're just trying to make it to bedtime. So if you're full of mom guilt, your temper scares you. You feel like you're screwing everything up and you're afraid to admit any of those things out loud. This podcast is for you. This is Failing Motherhood. I'm Danielle Batman, and each week we'll chat with a mom ready to be real, sharing her insecurities, her fears, her failures, and her wins. We do not have it all figured out. That's not the goal. The goal is to remind you, you are the mom your kids need. They need what you have, you are good enough, and you're not alone. I hope you pop in earbuds, somehow sneak away, and get ready to hear some hope from the trenches. You belong here, friend. We're so glad you're here. Hey, it's Danielle. I can't wait for you to dive into this episode. It is a little bit longer one, but it just keeps getting better and better and better as we go. Today, I'm interviewing Wendy Dickens. She's the executive director for First Five Shasta, an agency dedicated to assuring the youngest members of our community and their families have all the systems put in place to build a healthy foundation in life. Prior to that, she worked at Shasta County Health and Human Services as a program manager in the Children's Branch. She worked with the programs that included training for out-of-home care providers of foster youth, including medically fragile and drug-exposed infants and toddlers, licensing, adoptions, youth with intensive service needs, and youth who were non-minor dependents. Her career with HHSA children spanned over 15 years and always included work with families and youth who had many needs. She can currently participates in many collaboratives around the community to make sure that efforts towards early childhood education are being recognized as important in the community as well as support for families. These collaboratives include being the chair for Reach Higher Shasta, the chair for Strengthening Families, the Executive Community for Foster Youth Education, Shasta College Family Studies Committee, and several others. She is an ACE interface trainer and ambassador in relaying information about ACEs and the five protective factors within the community. So Shasta County is out of California, and Wendy has worked with families for years and years and years and has so much experience in knowing what kids need, knowing what families need, knowing what's going on at a community level. And just being able to see the progress and grow herself as a parent. And she shares so much wisdom in this episode. We basically geeked out on all sorts of nerdy early childhood stuff. We talked about the adverse childhood experiences. That's what those ACEs are. We talked about trauma, adversity, shame, her work in child protective services, having a trauma-informed approach, 
the idea of a rugged individualism and how we need to shift to more of a community. She gives a challenge to get to know your neighbors better and talks a lot about the science of hope. One of the things we mentioned in this episode is the importance of coping mechanisms and handling stress and how generational cycles of trauma don't allow people to have the coping mechanisms that they need and how important it is for kids to have one person to walk them through to build resilience. Yesterday was World Mental Health Day. And over the past year, mental health professionals and pediatric specialists have sounded an alarm. Kids younger and younger are suffering from mental health crises like anxiety, depression, and suicide, and they need help. The problem is resources are harder and harder to come by, especially for kids. And parents don't know how to help. Grown-ups and kids are stressed and overwhelmed and don't have the skills to cope. And at this point, our only option seems to be crossing our fingers and hoping that our kids don't become a statistic. But we already actually know what it takes to help prevent kids' mental health issues. The research is solid, but until now we haven't had a way to make this accessible to families. Sarah Olsher, from episode 37, talking about hard things, and I have developed the first easy-to-follow research-backed plan for parents to teach mental health and wellness at home. A lot of subscription boxes are like fun 20-minute activities that you're paying $17 for. That's not what this is that we created. These are skills intentionally curated, so each month enhances the last, designed to build a strong foundation for mental health in your family. Each month, you'll get a box with a tool to learn alongside your child, paired with practical support right from your phone via text. The goal is simplicity because we know that you don't need another thing to do halfway. We will provide you the guidance you need to implement and consistently carry it out each month. Some of the skills include coping with big emotions, problem solving and conflict resolution, healthy building healthy habits, and the power of their mindset. Each box will include everything you need and be an investment in their future. And I know you as my listeners care about this because good parents worry about things that matter. So we are passionate about bringing this project to life, this mental health at home subscription program for elementary school kids. But we need your help. We're going to be launching on Kickstarter in a few weeks. And until then, we have an opportunity for you to join the waitlist. Our mission is to raise a generation of resilient kids that are aware of their emotional health and have the skills to cope with life's toughest stuff. If that's something that you're passionate about bringing into your home, then join our waitlist at mightyandbright.com slash mental health. The link will be in the show notes. Go ahead and do that while you listen to this episode. Find out more of the initial details with our, about our project. Stay tuned for lots of updates. I am so excited about this. Okay, without further ado, here's my conversation with Wendy. Welcome to Failing Motherhood. My name is Danielle Bettman, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Wendy Dickens. Welcome, Wendy. 
Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to chat with you. I know we did the reverse. We did a pod- podcast swap, yes. and I was on yours a few weeks ago, so it's fun to get to, you know, re- reverse roles. And um, I, you know, I have to ask you the question I ask everybody, which is, have you ever felt like you were failing motherhood? Uh, probably on a daily basis, maybe even sometimes minute by minute. I don't know. I think, yes, I think that's a huge thing for moms and especially moms who have been exposed or worked within any kind of industry where children are a focus of that, right? And so, or if you're a, you know, social worker or you know, it teacher or, you know, any mom for sure, but definitely when you have had some educational attainment in those areas where you're like even more, oh my gosh, I just definitely didn't hit that one on the head. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> it's like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Right. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, I should have known that. Somehow I should have known. Right. And somehow, yeah. you know, I should, you know, be a little bit better at this having had some sort of degree that says I should be better at this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good segue into introducing yourself. So tell us more about who you are and what you do and what all of your academia behind your name is. Oh, sure. So um, currently I am the executive director for an organization called First Five Shasta. And there's actually in our state of California, there's actually a first five in every county. So we have many first fives or just one. Um, And we really look at systems change and support within our community around brain development and the age group of zero to five. So anything that really goes from prenatal care all the way through kindergarten readiness and all of the things that a family would need to be supported to develop the best brain architecture for their infant child um, into the age of five. Because we know that's the foundational years of brain development. And if we can get that down, any kind of interventions that need to happen later on in life are going to be easier for that child and that adult later in you know their um, adulthood if we can get that foundation laid strongly. So... That's kind of what I do. Yeah, it's kind of what I love it because I do get to do systems work. Um, Before this, which is a lot more prevention, um, I um, work now. I actually worked for uh, children's services. And most people know that as child welfare or CPS. Um, But in our county, we have a mega agency. So we have what we call HHSA, Health and Human Services Agency. And children's is actually children's mental health and child welfare in one so um, that we can be a little bit more able to cross the barriers that are sometimes siloed within those different types of work. And with that, I was introduced based on my internships through my educational attainment. So everything kind of, for me, has really flowed in my life really nicely to lead to the next chapter, so to speak. So when I was getting my um, bachelor's degree is when I decided, you know, I was getting my bachelor's degree in child development and psychology and in social science. And you had to do internships for those bachelor's degrees. And then you, uh, it led me to being able to work within a field where I was helping parents who had had their children removed, learn some different parenting techniques through some positive parenting. Thus, when I fail as a mother, I often really am hard on myself. Um, and um, But, you know, it then led me to work in the uh, child welfare arena, which I did for 16 years. Um, 
And, you know, it, it was a very fulfilling but very difficult arena to work within. And, and my heart and passion is still in there and working with children who have had adversity and adults who have had um, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, as many people may have already heard about. But that journey has really helped me examine myself, um, ha- examined my own parenting, has examined my desire to change systems within our community so that we can better prevent things from happening to children, and then they can be successful, productive members of our community as adults. And that's really the bottom line, right? Like we all want to have a successful, safe, loving community. And we have to get out of these silos to do that. We have to start to become a community. But there's some fear around that. There's some reasons people don't do that. So it's really been um, eye-opening and wonderful to have this journey um, in my life. And during my time at Children's, I also got my master's in social work. So uh, which was, you know, also I went the route of um, mental health because I was already working in our child welfare Title IV E programming and didn't feel like I needed to emphasize anything in that because I'd already been doing that for so many years. So uh, I think it's just been a great flow to my life and a great way of um, being able to work within passions that I have. I love that story of following towards prevention because that's a similar path that my career path has kind of gone on where I started off getting my degree from birth through third grade, you know, doing a lot of practicums in elementary and realizing I need to go young. Uh, I love the early years because so much is happening, right? Like 90% of their brain is formed by the time they get to school. So I was a lead teacher in Head Start. Then I I opted to switch to early Head Start because I was like, these three-year-olds have missed out on so much their first three years. Like, we got to start right away. And so I started with a group of essentially newborn to six-month-olds, stayed with them until they graduated to preschool. Loved that story. But then uh, I realized that what happens at home is it's really wiring these kids. And I can go beyond this one classroom year with this one child and impact the whole family for the whole childhood and get them on a different trajectory from day one. And so that's when I started home visiting and uh, now, you know, parent coaching. But it all comes down to how can we set them up for success as soon as possible because we know how impactful that early intervention is. So what has what kind of like assumptions or conclusions have you come to through just your own experience of seeing things firsthand? That's a great question. And, you know, it's just exciting to me to have fellow people who really also understand the importance of this early foundational years of a child's brain development and how important that means that the parents or the care providers in a child's life are, right? So, you know, no matter whether you're a working family and have to send your child into a educational setting, and I like to use the words early childhood education as opposed to child care. Um, mm-hmm. I've slipped too sometimes, but it really, early childhood education is, is really what I have found the importance and quality and in understanding what a child's brain development looks like is valuable to families. And as parents, we are our children's first teachers and most important teachers. We are teaching them things that will live through their life. What our values 
are in our home, follow your children. And even though we say, oh, I'm not going to do this with my mom, like my mom did, or I'm never going to say what my mom said to me, you will find yourself doing that if there aren't interventions that you take because it was a negative experience. Or you will find even when it's very positive that you have things you just didn't want to have happen with your mom. And you're like, oh, yeah, uh, I do sound like my mom or my dad or whoever it is that you're modeled <laughs> after, right? So I think we forget that parents, um, even as parents, sometimes we forget that we're the most important people in our children's lives. And so when I think about the work that I did in child welfare and seeing generationally how families started to really have certain patterns of behavior, not only is that due to some epigenetics and how adverse childhood experiences really affect how we live our lives and then our health within our lives. I I look at the fact that then that means as a community, we have to begin to support them differently and educate them differently. So really figuring out a way to help parents understand their own child's development and have appropriate expectations, not unrealistic or under, you know, um, expectations for their children. Because some parents, you know, really think a child should be doing certain things that are way above that child's age, or they think that children are doing it purposefully when that part of the brain really hasn't had an opportunity to develop uh, to be manipulative, so Mm -hmm. to speak, right? And we also need to remember that when a child is behaving a certain way, a lot of times they are really trying to figure out how they're feeling or what they're feeling or what they're doing, especially if they're under the age of five and never had anything modeled to them. And, you know, their brain is still developing. And then if they're over five, that may not have been a value in the home yet and or parents didn't know how to help their child go through those processes. So I think it's just really important to help parents understand that they are the most important in their child's life, um, whether that be because you are an adoptive parent, whether that be because you are the parent because the bio parents aren't available and you're their relative, whatever it is, I, you know, I'm it, mm-hmm. parents are parents in a child's life. And then that also in turn means that as the parent, you have to pick a care provider and a educational setting, even in the early years, that's really going to hone in on what your child's needs are and in the best way to develop your child. And your child looks different than another person's child based on their own mannerisms and characteristics and all of those pieces, right? Not everyone meshes with everyone. And sometimes as adults, we don't respect the fact that kids also have choice in who they like and don't like. You know, we're all okay with, oh, I don't really care for that person. But when a kid doesn't want to hug somebody, we're like, no, you give, you give your auntie a, a hug or, you know, maybe they don't want to at that moment in time. And it's also respectful for them to be able to say, you know, I have a boundary right now. So I think that's the other piece that I've also come to realize throughout my career is that sometimes we forget kids aren't going to mesh with everybody either. And adults in the life want to make that happen for them. Like, nope, you have to like everybody. No, we don't like everybody. And that's, you know, we are respectful to everybody, but that doesn't mean we like everybody, right? Yes. Yes. That's such a good point. So I want to, I want to back up to the adverse childhood experiences that you mentioned before. And I don't think that we have talked about that at length on this podcast yet. So if you would dive into kind of the definition and some examples of what those can be in those first five years and what research has shown. Sure. So the original research came from Dr. Filetti and Dr. Anda when Dr. Filetti was working at Kaiser Permanente and he was doing an obesity clinic. And that obesity clinic, he kept seeing clients come back after they'd lost weight, and then they regained their weight. And he accidentally asked one of his patients, you know, when did the 
child when did you when was the first time you had sex or something to that effect like um and he had never asked the question exactly like that before and he realized that she responded with a very young age and so he was doing some other work and he started seeing some patterns when he was asking some questions and he met Dr. Anda, who was with the CDC at the time, and they decided to do this combined study of over 17,000 people and all of them, and this is important, uh, all of them were of middle socioeconomic status. They had high school or above educational attainment and predominantly white. And the reason that's important is because I think over time, adverse childhood experiences, people will often say those behaviors, those it's those people over there. And what they were realizing that this didn't matter around what socioeconomic status you were in, it really mattered what your life experiences had been up to date, right? And that, you know, and I knew this from working in child welfare, but, you know, child abuse, neglect, all those things cross over every socioeconomic status. There isn't really one set of people, but sometimes you're a little bit more examined based on your socioeconomic status. So it can look like you are have more prevalence in that area, but really abuse doesn't know it. Same with drug addiction, same with all those things. So they did this study, and really what they found from this study is that there are approximately 10 types of ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences. And they span from having um, a parent who's been incarcerated, so that parent's no longer there, divorce. And the reason divorce is one is because usually there's some angst between the two parents that, you know, even if it isn't domestic violence, which is another ace, but there is some, you know, arguing that can happen. Um, and then there's a separation. And then one parent is usually more in contact with the children than the other. Nowadays, there is a little bit more going back and forth, but there's still some trauma around that, right? Like there's a different setting that the children go to. Um, and not to say that children can't build resilience, but it is still something that they have to deal with. Then there's undiagnosed mental health issues, drug addiction. So those are the types of things that are these 10 adverse child experiences from the original study. Now we know that trauma can have, you know, come from other places, right? So we know that trauma can come from other places. We also know that there is community trauma. And there's research that came through from epigenetic research that also talks about that layer of historical trauma and the community trauma. And we've had some wildfires out here. We've also all experienced a pandemic. Um, all of that creates other layers on top of what you may have already had as a trauma or just a trauma in an issue, right? So what we do when we talk about adverse child experiences here is we talk about the fact that you probably, even if you have zero right now, you probably know someone who has one or more base. Um, usually they layer on each other. This re original research did not talk about the longevity of a particular, let's say, sexual abuse or physical abuse as one of the trauma. It was a one-for-one one ratio. So they also know that a lot of times when you have one ACE, you're likely to have more than that because sometimes they come in combinations. And they really felt like this was, if you were if that happened to you one time, it was still an adverse childhood experience. It's going to affect you. What they also realized, and this is this was like the biggest public health discovery ever was that 
we also know that if you have four or more ACEs, you're higher likely to have other types of medical conditions and a lower life expectancy rate if no interventions occur. So higher blood pressure, higher levels of heart disease, um, other things that are created uh, in addition to an environment where sometimes there's behavior issues that go along with it. But the nice thing, um, or not nice, but maybe the one of the important things is this isn't just a around behavior issues, right? So a lot of times they'll say, oh, of course they act like that. They have X, Y, and Z happening in their lives, which is not necessarily an irrelevant comment to make, but it is not the only thing that's going to happen to them. The other piece is that you can have health issues and your community can have health-related issues if your community has a large number of adverse childhood experiences as a population as a whole. So there's population attributable risk in high levels of adverse childhood experiences within your community. And we in the northern area of California often have areas and pockets that have very high numbers of adverse childhood experiences for a variety of reasons. And so we really took this on as an opportunity to educate one another because education is power, right? So if you know more about it, then you can can examine yourself a little bit. And then you can also be a different contributor to the, your community because now you understand that, oh, maybe I need to find ways to approach things differently. We know that a child who is raised in a home where there's domestic violence or a high number of adverse childhood experiences are raised in a different environment. And they begin to actually make sure that they're developing around how to survive in that particular environment. So we say that they're adapting to their environment. It's not maladaptive. Maladaptive would mean they aren't able to adapt. They have adapted to that environment. Now, whether or not society thinks that's appropriate is a whole different story. But we also know that kids go to school, and you probably have experienced this. They go to school, and they've been in this very chaotic environment, and then the teacher has a set of guidelines and things that need to happen so that the other kids can learn. And this child's anxiety levels are super high. They don't know that that's what's happening. Or their responses are different because they've adapted to a different way of responding based on their home environment. And so we've also been very fruitful in helping our educational system understand that kids are going to come. They're not going to respond the same way as kids who were in an environment where there is a lot of consistency boundaries. You know, the other thing I want to point out, though, is that sometimes if there's no adversity, you have to have some adversity. I'm not talking about childhood adversity, but I'm talking about little tensions like you fall and you scrape your knee, you you fall off the bike, you have to get back up, you fall off the bike, you get back up. All of those are, you know, a little bit, you know, scary sometimes. Or you fall and break your arm. Now, that's a traumatic event. That adversity can build you, right? Mm -hmm. If you never have any adversity, if you never have any anxiety, then you aren't necessarily going to adapt well either, right? So you're going to have like a, a little bit of a difficulty if you go into a high stress situation because you're not going to know how to transverse that either, right? So, you know, that's the other reason why we call it adaptive, not maladaptive. You are adapting to what your life has looked like up to that point. And so as a teacher or a professional working with a child who's had a lot of adverse childhood experiences, you have to change your style a little bit to help them grow and become more societally acceptable in their behavior, right? So that's the part that, you know, is um, a piece of the educational system. But as a public health 
responsibility. We need to start looking at how do we help people lower their blood pressure? How do we help people not have heart disease? You know, one of the ways is to get interventions and build resilience. One of the things that um, I think is also a point that I like to try and make is that kids aren't born with resilience. You build resilience um, over time. And not that some kids don't have mannerisms that help them build resilience more quickly than other children. Um, but it's about opportunity and the adults in their lives helping them learn how to cope throughout that, their own desire to get up and scrape their knees off and go at it again, um, and how adults in their life respond to that. So if you get up, scrape your knees off and go at it again, and someone encourages that, whoever that might be, um, as opposed to someone who pushes you back down, that is going to look different for a child, right? And so, you know, when you talk to anybody who's overcome lots of adversity and has, you know, could say they're resilient, usually there's somebody been in their life that helps them see that that's important, right? That there's something different. There's something they can achieve, that they have what it takes, that they are a value to life in our society. Yes. Yeah, there is so much research that shows that the one factor that makes the difference between kids that go through the same circumstance and one that comes out, quote unquote, resilient and one that comes out, you know, very struggling to handle the rest of life, very affected by that um, in a long going fashion comes down to that one supportive person that helped them rationalize it, cope through it, teach them through it and essentially be able to relate back and forth. And that person is the difference maker. And that usually comes down to the primary caregiver, which is usually the mom. So uh, not to toot our own horns, but we kind of have an important job. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. And, you know, I think that it do- it does. Societally, we've said, you know, that women are supposed to be the primary. And so, you know, for all of the women out there who have had the knockdowns and the, you know, uh, we do have an important role in children's life, not to diminish the fact that dads have important roles, too. There's research Absolutely. out there that talks about dads as a very important role or males in very general as important. Yes. Even males, just their presence. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They teach something different. They have a different, you know, often value to add to that brain development. So, you know, mm-hmm. not diminishing that. But we as a right. society have really looked to women to be the primary responsible party in raising children. And in doing so, that does put a lot of kudos to us in in particular. And, you know, it's also the adverse childhood experiences is not a shaming blaming game either. So I also Mm -hmm. want to point out the fact that yes, you know, as a parent, I myself um, have created an adverse childhood experience for my children by divorcing their father, right? And, and, you know, that wasn't something I wanted to do. That wasn't something that was planned. Um, When I got married, I really felt like that was going to be forever. And that wasn't what happened, right? And so you have to learn how to help them through that. While you're trying to go through it yourself. So I think it's just making sure we don't feel shameful about what has happened. You know, I also will share that I have eight adverse child experiences. So it's also not a sentence to you. Eight is a lot out of 10. And I think that you have to remember you can be successful and achieve. You just have to learn how to 
cope with things in a good way and in a functional way and one that will be productive for you and then later for this, you know, for the community you live in. And, you know, but that isn't to say I haven't had my own challenges. I've had my own high blood pressure. I've had my own other things until I really realized what things I needed to do to help myself also with some of these things that I hadn't addressed or, you know, needed to address differently because I had addressed them in certain ways, but maybe not in the way that was the most beneficial to me. So it's about really looking at your own life and examining yourself and mm-hmm. and being patient as a parent and also kind to yourself. I think for moms in specific, like I think we're super hard on ourselves. And I think, oh, you know, yeah. the fact that you have this podcast is amazing because I think it's so important for, for us to hear from each other that you are doing a great job. You are doing the best you can with what you have right now here today, the energy level, the education, whatever it is, the friends or their lack of, you are doing the best you can. And that's all you can be asked to do is the best you can. And then tomorrow you can do better if you have different information. But to be patient and kind because no one's perfect. And and I had a long time ago, I had um, a grandmother who would say, and how boring would it be if everyone was perfect, which is so true, right? Like, <laughs> life would not would not be very interesting if we never made a mistake, right? So um, of course, sometimes we're like, uh, that mistake is a little too much. I don't know. Can I rewind? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> So uh, I think you alluded to this before, so I want to go back and and expand on it. The idea of a trauma-informed approach as a teacher, as a caregiver, um, as a early childhood provider of care, um, what things help us be able to individualize based on some of that knowledge of learning about what trauma can do for a child's life? Yeah, that that is a great, great, great question, because I think it is a difficult one to tackle for a lot of people, especially when you talk mm-hmm. to teachers who have already a lot on their plates and oh, um, are like, oh, my, yeah, insane amount of things mm-hmm. to do, insane amount of people to try and please, right, the parent, the, you know, administration, mm-hmm. all of that, right, themselves. So uh, I think, you know, when you're talking about a trauma-informed approach, one is first to learn about what it is that's happening in your community and to inform yourself of the different things that have maybe contributed to that. But I think the other thing is that you also have to examine your own space, right? And always be aware of what is triggering you. What are you reacting to? A lot of times as adults, some of our trigger options, especially those that are about power and control, are really about some of the things that happened to us when we were kids. And we feel like, well, that happened to me. And without even saying it out loud, that happened to me. I'm fine. And I am going to do it this way. And I can't stand that a kid refuses to do something that I ask them to do, which adults do that, but we just say it differently. And so then we don't get all our hackles in it, or maybe we do. It just depends on what kind of power and control things are going on for us that day. But I think it's one of the biggest things for me is to really examine how am I coming today to this and how then do I react? 
react. So a trauma-informed reaction really is about making sure that the reaction is about helping the other person, not making myself feel better. And as a Mm. teacher, it's about teaching to that other person in where they're at, which can be difficult when you have 30 students. But knowing if a kid is coming to school regularly with dirty clothes and dirty shoes and or no shoes and, um, you know, disheveled that they may not have a lot of control over that no matter what age they are. And maybe it isn't really about them uh, fighting a bath or fighting whatever it is with their parents. Maybe there's some reason they can't or there's some reason that they choose not to, right? So, you know, there's different things to learn about in regards to child sexual abuse in particular, like as to why there might be hygiene issues. But if they're coming and they've been homeless, the fact that they're coming is something to celebrate, right? And, you know, then really being conscientious about how we approach that, knowing that the other students are watching. And so we should be modeling to them. But also, there's certain age groups where about fairness and equity um, comes into play and helping them understand that equity isn't the same box for everybody. Equity is about providing the box that fits for that person to see over the fence, so to speak, or not to have a fence at all, removing barriers for them, right? And so... I think that, you know, coming to your organization, because you can do this even outside of the, you know, education, you could do this in your own organizations, you know, being trauma informed, and then providing trauma informed practices, you know, will help with relationship building. And we know relationships are the crux to all that is to be attained, whether that be you business whether that be in education, whether that be in social services, it doesn't matter which field you're in or realm you're in, uh, relationships are at the crux of everything. And if you don't build a relationship, uh, you're not going to provide what is needed, right? And that is even true yep. for IT, for example, right? Like I have an IT provider. Um, if I didn't have a relationship with that IT provider at all, uh, then I probably would just choose a different IT provider because I need them to understand what I'm saying to them in my language because they speak a very different language than I do, right? And so <laughs> I need I need it to be a different language. And so if we think about it in terms of like what helps you understand something, you know, finding out what helps that other person understand. So getting uh, into their language is helpful at whatever age they are. Because if you are coming at them with terminology they don't understand or ways of dealing with things they've never experienced, there's going to be some pushback or lack of buy-in and you're not going to get the response you were hoping or desiring. Um, So really, you know, trauma-informed for me really means really examining your own approaches having knowledge about what traumas have happened in your community or in that particular individual's lives to a certain extent, like you don't want to pry into people's, you shouldn't be having like full blown interviews with people before you're, (laughs) but you can glean, especially in certain professions, you can glean uh, what's going on, you know, and then there are some professions like in the medical field where Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who is um, our first uh, California Surgeon General and also, you know, started the Wellness Center and is a huge advocate for learning about adverse childhood experiences and how to then help families through that and not just diagnosing kids with ADHD because they have behaviors, but maybe looking at environment and then examining how as a medical professional, you're going to move forward with that child. Um, She is a huge, has been a huge help in determining how to get the questionnaire to families without making them feel like you're being intrusive even further. Um, and then being able to, as a 
doctor or a medical professional move forward with that family in a much more supportive way, right? And so it's really looking at all of those pieces, no matter where you're at in your practice, in your life, whatever that case might be, and and coming from a, a place of genuine desire to help, right? Mm-hmm. And no matter what, like, and if you're a business professional, what I always say to the business sector is, you want those return customers. That's what keeps your business going, right? The one-time stops are not necessarily going to keep you afloat. It's those people who come back. And in order to do that, you really kind of have to, you know, make sure that you're looking at how are you approaching them and then responding adequately when they may not respond in a way that you're very, you know, you're you're feeling very good about. You're like, excuse me, I didn't like you know yell at you. I don't know why you're yelling at me. But remembering that their their uh, adaptive skill is coming from what they learned, and a lot of yelling happens in some families, and that's how they see things get dealt with and handled is by raising their voice, dealing with it in a more aggressive fashion. Um, and they start thinking much more from their amygdala and instead of their frontal lobes. And we know that that is not necessarily going to be helpful, but we don't want to have to, we don't want to rise to that too, because then that just tends to exacerbate the situation. If you can understand it's not personal, that's a big, mm-hmm. big piece of it. It is not personal. And even when your child's misbehaving as a parent, it is not personal. They are working through some things. You know, yes. you, you can't take it. Even when they say very mean, awful, horrible things to you, <laughs> you cannot take it personal. You know, um, and that's the that's one of the hardest things. As a child welfare social worker, I was called almost every name in the book. And when I first started, one of those supervisors I had, one wonderful uh, mentor I had, was like, do not take what they say to you personally. This is about them and the things that they're feeling and the anger that they're feeling and maybe the shame and the guilt and the frustration and all of those other emotions that happen when something big goes on in your life and they're going to lash out at the closest person and you're yeah. it and you are also the one that represents putting it in their you know front of them that there's something not okay happening um yeah. so not taking it personal is a huge piece of of all of the trauma informed and just being kind kind to each other Yes. Oh, that's such a big takeaway. We could dive in. We could have a whole podcast episode just about <laughs> that detachment and, you know, personalization of how much other people's uh, behavior is about them and not you and all of that. But um, I have so many more questions to ask you. And I want to I want to get more into that whole world of child welfare, because I feel like it's a mystery. And I feel like there's so much misconception that uh, could be, you know, intentional messages that we were sent by how we were raised and what how, how other adults talked about other families around us, or it could just be a complete kind of ignorance or naivety when it comes to other, how other people live that look, their families look different than us. And so I would love for you to share a little bit of that personal experience to help us understand more, because the more we can understand by hearing each other's stories, the more we can have um, compassion and empathy, and the more we can come to more fruitful conclusions of what, how we can help each other and support a better future. And I know that we all are in in it for that. So um, tell us more about what families are struggling with and, you know, whether or not it's this idea of just horrible people raising, you know, being bad parents and, you know, writing them off or what's really going on. That's it. Um, 
I think it's wonderful to keep it broad like that because, you know, each state has their own laws and mandates and run things a little bit differently based on Mm -hmm. some of the laws that are federal. But we all have similar issues when it comes to the families that we might interface, right? So whether you live in a big city or a small rural area, some of the pieces and parts may look a tiny bit different. But what the families are struggling with often is very similar, right? And it can be generational. And that's one of the things that I really realized working in child welfare is that by the time I ended my six year career, the kids I had been um, having on my caseload as children were now becoming parents to the children that were on some of the social workers caseloads that were under me. So when I ended as a program manager, and and so that was really sad to me because that meant that some of the interventions that we um, tried to achieve were either not successful or weren't used adequately, uh, whatever the case might be. One of the biggest things is that You know, and I used to train new social workers as they were coming into the child welfare system for our county. And it was fascinating. You know, you come in, you're bright eyed, you really want to like change the world and you want to see things and you can easily become disillusioned or jaded by some of the things that you have to do that aren't directly working with families or how frustrating it can be when you're working with a family and you're not seeing the progress you had hoped. But you, what I would always talk about is like success looks different for every person and we really need to not measure success based on our own measure stick, but what is really successful for them. And that can look different family to family, person to person. And so that really helped me great, you know, really helped me gain some insight and empathy. Um, When I left, you know, I really felt still very empathetic to the families who were struggling. Many of them had, you know, generationally been in poverty and were really, it was really hard to see something different for them. You know, and I, I think we can, you know, hear about some of these very overnight successes or people plucked out and going into a professional sport um, from an inner city area. But those are very far and few between and rare. And, you know, there's a lot of research out there that shows that the socioeconomic status you're born into is likely the one you'll stay in unless there's some true, like, intervention or true desire to uh, and knowledge about something different, right? Like, and even if you want to be different, sometimes it's very hard. The opportunities are not the same for people who in certain areas and in certain socioeconomic statuses. And I think we forget that because I think we want to believe so wholeheartedly that anybody can just achieve whatever. But certain, you know, things are not available to you if you live in a certain area or if you um, are of a certain socioeconomic status. You don't have the same advantages. Going to college, you know, you can get financial aid. You're still not going to go to the same colleges. You're still not going to go to the same UCs, CSUs. And then actually you have that middle crunch area too where like you don't qualify for anything, but you don't quite make enough to like help provide for the opportunities. So, but what I saw to get back to your kind of question around like, what are they struggling with? You know, one of the the big things is that a lot of times there wasn't passed down to them those good coping skills, those good things. You know, there might have been mental health already in the family that was unaddressed Mm -hmm. that there was a lot of shame around going and getting help for, or it was pushed to side or people were like, no, that's not really what they have. You know, that's not a big deal. And then, or there was drug use that was either to address that, you know, illicit Mm -hmm. drug use, um, And then you start down a road or a path that isn't, you know, the best for you, um, you know, or, you know, and there'll be families who, you know, they're like, I don't understand what happened. And a lot of times, you know, you as a parent can't control everything that's happening in your child's life when they're not with you. 
And even when they are with you, right? Like you could get into a car accident. You could that you can't control everything, right? And then when they go off to school, their peers have a huge influence on them. And you hope that they're making good choices and making strong decisions about no, I'm not going to go experiment with this drug or go down this road or path. But sometimes that does happen. And then it's hard for them to pull if they have, you know, a predisposition to addiction or if they, you know, um, decide this is the way they want to handle whatever emotional issue that is coming up for them instead of coping it in a more functional way. These families, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is that these families don't care about their kids. They don't love their kids. How could you choose drugs over your kids? Or how could you beat your kid? I could never do that to my child. You're probably right. You wouldn't do that to your child. However, you probably have different coping skills. You probably had different modeling in your life. You also probably have the ability to stop when you become angry and not just push forward with that anger. You probably have some filters. Um, you probably didn't have some of the same mental health issues that are, you know, t- you know, families are tackling. And so really understanding that probably I could count on one hand with the number of families that I worked with or came into contact with um, in my 16 years, which was thousands, um, one hand who didn't care about their kid. And and I was probably making my own judgment. They probably did in their own way care about their kids. Um, and it was really just two that I felt did not care at all about their kids. Um, wow. Even when people give their children up for adoption, there's some caring there. They know that they're not going to be able to do it, right? That, that it wasn't an easy decision for them to come to. Uh, they know that that was probably better for that child uh, in the long run than keeping that child in their home, you know, and parents want to do the best they can. But many of them don't have the skills, don't have the anger management, don't have the tools that are most necessary to staying maintained when they become angry, right? And so when you see babies shaken and when you see, which are very difficult situations to see, or when you see a child who's been beat pretty profusely or who has been um, tortured, basically, you you do have some visceral reaction. I do. I mean, I have, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that I don't. I do. Um, and I don't necessarily feel sorry for the parent or the care provider. We've had some pretty tough cases here where there was, you know, child's torture. And that is never a, a fun thing to see. But that's the rare cases. Those are the ones that get make the news though and those are the what people think all people in the child welfare arena are looking like and that isn't true and again i would say okay so what happened to them that made them think that this was okay way to handle this child what happened to them that person and so that's one of the biggest questions that i like to ask which is very trauma informed and very you know what happened to you not what's wrong with you right you know we often will say what's wrong with you no no It's what happened to you. There's obviously something happened that is gotten you to this place where you thought punishment looked like this when everyone else knows that punishment is definitely that's beyond punishment. Right. Right. And um, so, you know, really trying to figure out what has happened to create some of these things is is one of the things that I stuck with through my career and knowing that most every parent, whether we saw it or believed it cared about their child and were trying to do what they thought was going to make their child the best person later on. So Mm -hmm. even if it was the worst way to do it, 
which definitely there are some very bad ways to do it. And it was not going to make their child the best person they could be. Definitely not. They believe somehow it was going to. Right. And sometimes there is some mental illness that they had that like, you know, this is they had lack of empathy for their own child in some cases. But I think mostly it was they just uh, of an misinformed way of handling situations or, you know, unknowledgeable and they thought they were doing better than what their own parent did because most parents want what better than they have for themselves when they were kids, um, even if they had a great life, right? And so knowing that most parents really care and that they're struggling with some of the same issues you and I are struggling with and that, you know, really, you know, I'm probably two paychecks away from, you know, if I didn't have any support networks, because that's the other thing that's really big is those social connections, having others who can support you. And a lot of these families, once they've gotten to the places they are, don't have any functional or, you know, you know, good support networks and people they can count on in the event of an emergency or anything like that. They've burned bridges or the people they have are as dysfunctional in their lives. So I think, you know, we have a lot to think about when it comes to like, how do we help them? How do we break that generational cycle of trauma? Um, But also understanding and having empathy for them that what happened to them that makes them think that this is the way to handle life. And then when you talk about drugs, that's a whole other huge conversation we could have that, you know, it just changes your brain chemistry. It changes your desires. And before you know it, you are so fixated on getting that next hit, that next high, that next whatever, that you've forgotten all of your other responsibilities. And then you're like, oh, crap, I need to feed the kids. Let's go to McDonald's or you know Burger King or whatever fast food restaurant you have. And you don't do what you need to do for them to build their socio-emotional, which then you have adults growing into life without good social-emotional skills. And that's why you have triggering that happens and you're in the grocery line and someone's screaming at you all of a sudden, you didn't even do anything. So I think it's just Mm -hmm. knowing that we can help somehow figure out a way to make that better for them by not judging initially and just saying, hey, what happened? How can we help you now? Yes. Which I think is a new book by like Oprah and. uh, Oh, yes. And Dr. Perry. Perry. Yes. Yes. Dr. Perry is amazing. We brought him here to Shasta County too. you know, his NME, which is the neuro sequential model of education is used very often here as one of the ways and tools to help address adversity and trauma and the responses that come from that. Um, And we also have the neuro sequential model of therapeutic interventions happening here in our county. He's amazing. All his brain research is some of the first brain research that came out around how to handle and help people through trauma. So I yeah, highly recommend that book. And I'm glad you mentioned it as well as The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Okay, I will link both of those in the show notes. So I'm glad that you that we're able to put some new resources in in listeners hands. Okay. Um, I'm making a note for that. Okay. So I I just want to add my my two cents real quick, because I before I became a parent, I was the best parent in the world, of course. Anyway. <laughs> right? I know. Yes. And how could well, – I would never let my kid do that. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe? Yeah. Yes. I had it all planned out. The no exactly. screen time, yeah. all of, like the Mary Poppins bag, all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so at that point, I was home visiting, and I had moved from, you know, classroom, um, classroom teaching to home visiting, and I was literally in the homes every single week of families on my caseload, and – 
it opened my eyes so much because these were people that uh, – they weren't court mandated to be a part of the program I was running. It was called Early Steps to School Success. They genuinely had an interest to learn more about what they could do to support their child. And they needed to be connected with resources. And they didn't have books to read with their kids, but they were happy to if I, you know, brought them. And they were fascinated by the milestone, um, you know, checklist, the checklist that we would do every couple months and be able to show up, show off the things that their kids were learning. And, um, I got to then see firsthand some of the background of what was going on for that family. Maybe they had a family member that had to be deported, or maybe they were coming up on a promotion that they had to opt not to take. Otherwise, they were going to then be disqualified for the childcare reimbursement. And so then they, then they wouldn't be able to afford to work anymore. And so just learning all of these ins and outs of what was actually going on behind the scenes helped me so much to be able to better understand that these were parents that absolutely loved their kids. They wanted what's best for them. And that was a training I went through through touch points I love where touch you make points. these assumptions about yeah, families. Yeah. And that was a game changing workshop for me because being able to take those assumptions and put them to every family that I was working with, they were so true. And one of those is that every parent, you know, wants success for their child and how they may be going about that. You need to basically embrace the passion that they bring to the conversation, because even if it is a very conflict laden conversation, that is them caring. That is mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. bringing to the table their side of being an expert on their child and really wanting a path of success and what they are doing is how they perceive that that success path looks like. And, you know, there may be a difference in semantics of what we see eye to eye in that situation. But being able to really know that firsthand was game changing for me. But before that, when I was a classroom teacher, I didn't have kids. Uh, there was there's a conversation that goes on through early childhood providers that really says that we over here want these outcomes for kids. And essentially the parents are our adversaries in that. Like they're the ones that are not doing the homework. They're the ones that are not following through at home. They're the ones that are making this so hard for us. Like we're the good, we're the right? good fight, yeah, you know, we're yeah. the warriors on this side. And so then, you know, through those, through those life experiences, I really realized that that was not the case, but I still feel like that is a prevalent societal expectation is that, mm -hmm. you know, Parents aren't doing the best that they can. And so then we make judgments. So all of that to say, I really appreciate your insight in because you have so much knowledge of what's going on with families. And I know that shame helps no one. Right. Judgment helps no one. We are not making any <laughs> child's life better no. by judging their parents. We right. just are not. <laughs> and I think that, I, yeah, that's such a great point. And I think, you know, when I when you were talking, that so many of what – so many points you made were so valuable and people, you know, I want to just uplift like knowing that parents are experts in their children. And again, bringing out their passion and finding a way to help be at their place in how they're handling things to get them to see maybe a different way of doing things is really going to help the child. And I think the biggest goal we all have is to, you know, help the children so that as they grow into adulthood, they're the best, most productive members of our society. And you cannot help the children without helping the parents. So I think yes. that's also another, <laughs> another piece that is forgotten, right? You cannot, yes. you could be the best teacher, best 
educator, best uh, professional in your world, best doctor, best, you know, whatever it is. If you're not helping the family as a whole, you're not helping the child. And yes. I think we forget that, you know, we, yeah. we were all about helping, you know, the children, but we forget that you can't help them without also supporting the parents somehow and some way and uplifting the parents because the children are home with the parents more than they're at school. The children mm-hmm. are home with the parents and the parents are trying to transverse life the best they can. And I think if anyone's ever been up in the middle of the night 15 times with a colicky baby, you know how easy it is to get tired and frustrated, but you oh, have yeah. skills that maybe that wasn't something attained by a different parent. So just knowing that that might not have been modeled to them or, you know, the ability to stay, you know, centered hasn't been something they've had. And having Mm -hmm. that empathy, just going back to a time where you were frustrated and struggled, you know, with your own child, um, Mm -hmm. or with a child you were helping provide care for, like just knowing that that meant you had different skills that didn't make you better, didn't make you worse, it just makes you different. Um, But then supporting each other, I love to find a mom in the grocery store, who is doing their best to stay with their wits about them and their child is Mm -hmm. having a complete meltdown and just mm-hmm. saying, you know what, mom, you're doing so good. This is a really hard time, I can tell. And usually I get the best responses from the mom, like, thank you, I needed to hear that. Or, you know, yes. because they, you could get, people will say awful things to you, other people in the, like, you need to f- control your kid. Okay, because you can control anybody in life. I don't know about that. Like, and yeah. kids are going to have meltdowns. And if I don't teach them how to deal with those meltdowns now, like if I always I'm in the I'm in the checkout stand. If I leave right now, then I have to come back another time. I don't have the bandwidth to do that and nor do I have the time. And so I don't know that you understand like having a small child, you know, and it's not just you know people forget like we have a lot of firefighters around our area. They forget firefighters are out of the house a lot. So one parent is home with the kids, you know, and they're usually working too. So and usually that's the mom, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, them trying to grocery shop, trying to do all of the things you have to do as a single-like parent. That doesn't mean you necessarily are. And there shouldn't be shame in being a single parent either. But right. there is still in society. And I think we shame each other. We don't bring each other up. And I think females often do this to each other too, especially in the professional world um, and as moms. So those t- mm-hmm. are the two that I see the most happen, right? Like as a mom, we shame each other um, and are catty with one another or as a professional, instead of uplifting each other, when we have enough happening in our lives and in this world, we tear each other down instead of build each other up. And the biggest thing we can do to help each other is to stay connected and support one another through those hard, difficult times and cheer each other on during those times that are going well. Like, so be there for each other, right? So, you know, I think, you know, I know that's a little off topic, but I'm just saying. No, I am, yes, I'm here for that as a talking point because I started giving good job stickers out to other parents that I saw, like not to their kids, to to the parents. Right? Because I need a good job sticker. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We all do not hear enough that we are doing our best. And that's when we get so hard on ourselves, too, because we we have none of that feedback. We have no checklist of things that we accomplished and, you know, this rubric of how we're doing as a parent because we can't use them as a report card. So then what? And we're just so burdened by a long list of things to do, a very 
tough mental load to keep up with, and then a pandemic on top of it. So, right? yes, we all need more, way more support and a lot less judgment. <laughs> um, if that's the only takeaway from this episode, then I'm here for it for sure. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so that leads me to my last point, which I wanted to get into this idea of rugged individualism that we all like subconsciously have agreed is how our society functions. And uh, what is your thoughts on that? And what is, what is the harm behind, you know, some of that ideology? I love that question, because I think we do have unwritten permissions for rugged individualism to happen. You hear it like, oh, just pull yourself up. Oh, it's not a big deal. I don't know why you can't just get over that. And or when a kid is like before the age of 18, if something happens, we're like, oh, but at 18, you better figure it out and know how to do it and be better at it. And Mm -hmm. without help. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have some shaming that we do. That's really about rugged individualism. Right. If you ask Mm -hmm. for help, there's something wrong with your ability. Um, And so that's all a part of that. We also have become very uh, – we've moved all over the United States, right? So instead of being close to our family or all over the the world, really. So Mm -hmm. instead of being close to our families like we used to live – we are very far apart from family members. And so we don't have the same kind of support. So then we also used to live in much more like village type areas. And you hear that old adage, it takes a village to raise a child because it's true. Mm-hmm. You used to have your aunts, your uncles, your sisters, your brothers, your you know close family friends who helped you, right? And it wasn't this like, how dare you tell my child not to cross the street? You know, there wasn't this whole like, raising of hackles when someone, you know, stepped in to help your child if you weren't there, right? So I'm not saying like, you should allow your neighbors to like, spank your kids. Or, I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is like, if they were ready to cross the street, I appreciated that when one of my neighbors said to my kid, like, where are you going? Like, I don't know that your mom would be okay with you going over there. Like, and then my child was like, Oh, yeah, you're probably right. And oh, there's another adult watching me. Oh, I better go home and check in. Right. Instead of me like, how dare you even talk to my kid? I mean, I know that we have some scariness. I know that, you know, but that's the other piece of this, right? We don't know our neighbors like we used to know our neighbors. You used Mm -hmm. to be able to ask for a can, you know, a cup of sugar, you know, a cup of milk, whatever it is, because you ran out. Now you don't even know your neighbors. You just run down to the most, you know, closest convenience store or grocery store and get it yourself and, you know, to go about your business. But we need to get back to those communities where we know our neighbors. We Then you're less fearful. You also, you know, don't make poor decisions about allowing your kid to go over to someone's house that you don't super know. And even if you do, like that, you need to be cautious. I'm not saying those things. Having worked in child welfare, I am not naive to believe that there aren't people out there that could harm your child. What I am saying, though, is that as a rugged individual, we are not going to have the same capacities to help each other as if we decide to become a village again. And rugged Mm -hmm. individualism has really siloed things to a place where we then don't get the help we need when we need it, and we begin to fall into patterns of behavior that are less societally acceptable because we didn't ask for help, we don't know how to cope with it, we didn't know what to do, and now we're teaching our children that too. And then it just continues to grow in problematic arenas as time goes on. And if we come back together, start having social connections, start showing that we are supporting one another through our community efforts, making sure our neighbors are okay and safe, making sure that if they're not, we're we're helping figure out how we provide not 
housing to them, uh, your own personal pocketbooks. But how do we help them figure out a way that's better and more functional for our community? Because that's going to create a strong community. Strong communities come from strong members of the community. You can't continue to say, what are you doing over there to make this better? That's one of the things I hear sometimes is what is happening in our community to make this better? And I always say, oh, there's lots happening. And what is one thing you can do? What is one thing that you as a community member of this village can do to help this village instead of, you know, no, that's up to you. Raise yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it because that's the American way. And the American way is the only way. And, you know, I mean, it's it wasn't the American way originally. <laughs> we used to live in more communal types of areas. And in the Native Americans used to live in much more communal types of areas. And the further we've gotten away from it, the more issues we've had. If you look historically at when problems began, usually as a community, if you lived in a village and there was a problem, you as a community in that village helped everyone through that. It wasn't like, oh, they're a terrible, awful person. We are no longer going to have any, you know, kinds of, you know, contact with them. I'm not saying that consequences didn't happen because consequences are important as well. So I'm not negating consequences or saying they shouldn't be there or, you know, saying we don't have consequences for poor behavior. We totally need to have consequences. But we need to start teaching that earlier in a child's life than waiting till they're 18, right? And it needs Mm -hmm. to not be such like a rugged individual type of response as opposed to like, okay, how do we together figure out a better way for us to handle this situation and Mm -hmm. come together to find a solution and come together to find a way to help that? When we know a child who, you know, if you look at some of the very awful things that have happened in history, when you examine a child's life or a person's life back into childhood, There are some definite things that you're like, oh, yeah, that would have been a great time for an intervention or that would have been a wonderful time for the family members who were so busy to kind of check in. And we know you're busy with life, but taking a minute out of your time to really investigate what's happening for your, you know, family or for your friend Mm -hmm. isn't isn't something that you can just do away with because we do need each other. We're humans. We're a social networking being that we're not meant to be alone. You know, when you have people who are isolated, you know, there's, you know, there's research about kids who are left in their cribs by themselves. That doesn't make for a very socially accepted and or socially responsible person. Um, the Unabomber, well, we know how that was. And, and he was very much isolated, right? He did not have friends. Nobody knew him. And, um, you know, and then you have people who can be charismatic, but are not socially appropriate either. So we get that. But if you have a village, you begin to know and recognize that much sooner than if you're individuals just living in a, in a community, right? Like, you don't see it as soon. You don't see what's mm-hmm. happening over there. And then you have people saying, oh, he was such a nice neighbor. Okay. <laughs> because you yes. didn't really know him. You did yes. not really know him. You didn't go to coffee with him. You didn't go into, you know, you didn't really know him um, because we're individuals living on the same street, not a community living together. And that's the big, for me, the difference, right? Because people will say, well, you have people who, you know, are very social who are not okay. Yes, I totally agree. But if you have a community who's really looking out for one another, that gets recognized sooner. That gets, mm-hmm. you know, instead of you saying, well, he was always so nice. Yep. How is he nice? He waved to you every time you cr- you went by him on the street. Did you ever have a conversation of any length or depth? Probably not. 
So you didn't really know them. That's not a community, right? Mm -hmm. Getting to know your neighbors doesn't mean you just wave to them and know their name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that rugged individualism has really hampered our ability to make sure that we have the most productive members of our community as they grow up because you don't you only have one or two adults, two, maybe three, you know, living in the same home that are watching it, you know, this child and you as a parent have to take a shower, have to cook dinner, have to do chores. You can't watch your child 24/7 ever. Like this is not feasible. And so, you know, if they're outside playing and then they leave the yard and you think they're still outside playing in your yard, if you have a neighbor you know well, they're going to address that. And as long as they're appropriate when they do so, you want that. You don't want your kid to just like be able to willy-nilly do. But we've become so individual. And even the like levels of disrespect that happen now because of that, right? And you as a parent are always modeling. And one of the things that I think is so important to remember is, you know, how do we want our children to behave as adults? Do we want them to be, you know, respectful? Do we want them to be successful? If we want them to be successful, that really requires some respect to other people, Because no matter what job you have, there's respect required in some way, shape, or form. And so if we're modeling disrespect all the time to to other people in front of our children, that's what they're going to do. Because Mm -hmm. children learn through how they see, not just being told what to do. And so, you know, it's not that, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because that's not how we learn as humans. And whoever made that saying up was ridiculous, because that is definitely not how we learn. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Could not be farther from the truth. (laughs) But I think, I think, unfortunately, especially with the pandemic, what's been seen is like families are uh, such and such and such of a draining capacity to be able to take care of any, go beyond anything but survival mode of, you know, trying to get work done and trying to get virtual learning done and trying to just keep up with the house and like make any type of social connection and, you know, get groceries and all the things that we usually all of our friends are maxed out as well. Mm -hmm. So then we can't, there isn't that overlap of people checking on each other and doing things for each other because we all just had babies or we all are just like trying to do virtual learning and, you know, stay healthy. So therefore like we're not able to make momentum towards that community. It's actually the opposite because we're more and more individually taxed. And yeah, exactly. Well, and I think the pandemic really brought that to light, right? But yeah, you know, that's why you need your neighborhood to jump in, right? Because usually not everyone on your neighborhood is has is having babies, right? Like maybe a yeah. couple of you, but not everybody, right? But you also mm-hmm. have the little, you know, old folks that are on there that have such great wisdom and who can like, you know, or you have the younger, you know, families who could come and help with yard work. I mean, whatever the case might be, wherever you live, mm-hmm. maybe you don't need yard work help, but it's just an example If we, even pre-pandemic, were to have had that built and strengthened during the pandemic, we probably would not have felt. I know that, yes, there were times. I'm a very social person. So the pandemic was super hard on me in a lot of ways because um, Zoom can only create so much connection when you know that being in the same room as somebody provides you with a different energy level, right? And you can feel that. And it's different to be right next to someone as opposed to watching them on a screen, which we also know brain activity wise is very different, right? Mm -hmm. So and then juggling definitely as a parent, having to put my kids, you know, in a zoom and me being in a zoom and everyone using the zoom and the frustration of the technology on top of like, 
I need you in the other room because I can still hear you and you're, I can't like, uh, my brain is too much right now. You know, it's yeah. just like, you know, all of those pieces trying to parent and especially parents of young children while you're trying to work from home and Zoom, like, it, you know, and if you had a more empathetic job situation, that was great, but not everybody did. And so you'd have people, you know, like, oh, I can't believe you let your kid run through the room during your Zoom. Well, hello, there are kids and I had to work from home. Like, I don't know what you want from me. So I think yeah. it's, you know, it's true. And just, you know, uh, but, you know, just knowing that as we're moving out of this hopefully, um, pandemic that we start building those so that if something like that were to happen, you have somebody in your bubble that you can start to at least draw from. And that's going to probably be the people closest living to you, not someone across town, not a friend that's in the same situation, which can be fun when you're pregnant and have kids together if you're not in a pandemic. But if you're in a pandemic, that's no fun because you don't get to get together and build camaraderie over it. You get to try and Zoom with two crying babies and that's no or any, right. you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so you're like, I can't, I have to have my video off the entire time because you can't see how horribly disheveled I am. And <laughs> yep, real life. <laughs> yeah, right. Real life is for sure. <laughs> anyway. Yes. No, I think that's a really good case for case for the neighborhood approach where that we've gotten so far away from, but we had the joy of getting to be next door neighbors at our, in our apartment building with this like 65 year old, um, retired kindergarten teacher who didn't have any grandkids close and just like basically came as an adoptive grandma to my daughters. And we love her so much. We have since moved, but now, you know, we're still trying to stay connected because she's so sweet. And it was like, yes, that is a match made in heaven for our neighbors because like we could totally support each other in all the ways that we were needing support and um and I just love being able to to have that yeah. type of just like sense of community within our within our apartment building let alone you know neighborhoods beyond that so I I feel like you gave us so much perspective so many things to chew on and to go research and read um after this so um any other to wrap up if you want to get on a soapbox and say anything else that you feel like parents need to hear or just like we need to understand as a society, what would you say? So one of the things that we're really focusing on in our community now isn't just on the information around adverse child experiences. It is really about that resilience building and hope. So hope and resilience is our theme right now. And so there is a wonderful book by Dr. Chan Hellman um, and Casey Gwynn that is um, one that you can read about kind of the research around hope and how there is a science behind hope as well. And that the more hopeful you are, the better the resilience. Um, And if you have, you know, hope in your life and you have the means to achieve, then you can achieve things no matter how many adverse child experiences you are. But we as a community can build hope for each other and build hope for ourselves. And so we're really going to tackle that. And so I think it's really important to remember that no matter how many adverse child experiences you have, no matter what your trauma has been, you have the opportunity through that knowledge of that um, and through maybe some different types of intervention to build hope 
and resilience for yourself and then for the future, um, for your children, for other people. So I think, you know, again, remembering to be kind to yourself and patient with yourself as you're moving forward and, and trying to transverse what your life looks like, you know, pre, post and during COVID um, and knowing that we all responded in the best way we could and in the way that we knew how and, you know, just building each other up and building hope into each other is going to be the best for our our community, our society, our world. If we want a good world for our kids to grow up and live in, we got to take action ourselves too. We can't rely upon others to do it only. So that's just my yeah. little, my yeah. little box. There's there, and that's not only a personal responsibility, but it's it is a sense of hope. Is that there is things that we mm-hmm. can individually do that will create a better tomorrow for our kids. And we are really all on board for that. So in the ways that we can break that down into small digestible steps, um, you know, one by one, one relationship at a time, um, well, it's possible. And we're here to do it. So I love that. Thank you for kind of summing that up. And the last question I ask every guest that I have on is, how are you the mom that your kids need? And so your, your kids are what age right now? Well, they're older now. So I have a 15-year-old and a 20-year-old. I'm getting old. (laughs) (laughs) So how are you the mom that they need? Um, I feel like I'm the mom they need because I really do listen. Like I sit and listen to what they have to say before responding. And I ask them what they're hoping for from the conversation. So, you know, do they need me to help brainstorm with them solutions or do they just need to kind of get – this information out or are they trying to teach me something maybe they are hoping I learned something from the conversation so you know I think that comes from a lot of my professional world as well as um, just who I am naturally I'm an input person so I like to hear and see things but I think for me you know really just trying to understand where they're coming from um, makes me better able to understand what I need to do as their parent. And so that's how I am the best mom to them I can be. Um, Not that I'm perfect at that. Not that that's always what happens when I'm in my own cranky world. But I do try very hard to, you know, let them, you know, come to me and say, hey, look, I just need to to chat this out. And in talking it, I'll probably find my own solution. Or I I need you to try and brainstorm with me. Or, you know, mom, I just need to tell you how this felt for me. And, you know, I just need to be validated, whatever that case might be, you know, and of course, they're older. So, you know, it's a little bit more easily done um, than when they were younger. Um, But it's definitely something we've practiced over time. So I love that. When do you feel like you started asking them that at the beginning of those conversations? What age were they? Yeah, it was probably around three. I mean, obviously age appropriately, but it was around three that I would be like, okay, well, what what do we need to do? You know, it it would be how I'd ask then, like, or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how can mommy help, Um, you know, um, or what do you need from mommy? Um, you know, as we move old, you know, to to their older, but probably around three, like, you know, what's going on kind of for them in that moment was something that was always at the forefront. But, you know, I come from early education, child development, and having been a preschool teacher and, you know, the zero to five world was always a part, even my child welfare days, working in the drug and t- children's unit and medically fragile drug exposed infants and toddlers. And, um, you know, doing all of that really kept me focused on understanding that that early 
social emotional development was so important. So it's really been my way of trying to help make sure that we're developing that throughout time and helping them really examine them, their own feelings, um, mm-hmm. which is a part of why a kid comes to you to talk about things a lot of, you know, a lot of the time. So. Yes. Well, clearly you're doing something right if they continue to come yeah. back to you over yeah. and over at the, those yeah. ages. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's what we're striving for when I ask right, people, right. like, what, what do they want for the teen years? They want open, honest communication. Yeah. And they want that relationship to have built up that track record. And so that's such a great practical takeaway um, that all moms will be able to say, okay, how am I, how can I incorporate that at the age my kids are? Um, yeah. So I love that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Parenting. Yeah. So thanks again for spending this time with us and being able to share from your wealth of knowledge and experience um, what what life looks like for families in not only Northern California, but we can all relate and to be able to, <laughs> to better understand um, what the struggles are and, and how we can help each other and build that support network back up. So thanks again for being here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. And um, hopefully you'll have me back again, because I have really had fun. So thank you. Oh, for sure. We could talk for hours. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) You're awesome. Yes, for sure. I'm so glad you stayed until the end. Go ahead and check out those book recommendations that I'll link in the show notes and find more ways to help you feel like you are the parent that your kids need. Make sure you're on the wait list for that mental health at home subscription box that I was talking about at the beginning of this episode. Don't miss out on all the updates as we bring that to life. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your reviews. Thank you for the DMs on Instagram and just for listening and spending your time with us together, really helping you step into the fact that you are doing this. You got this. You are figuring it out day in and day out. You are getting better at this parenting thing. And I'm just so glad that you're here. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. I believe in you and I'm cheering you on.